again, welcome to Cornerstone Church. It is an honor to have you here this morning. Um, There's a number of people out of town, so pray for them, but it's good to still have a full house. It's good to have you here this morning, and I pray that God would use his word to bless you. We will be again in the epistle to Galatians in chapter 3. We're going to be reading in a few minutes from verse 21 through 29. But before we begin, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you, God, for the glorious plan of salvation that is realized in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And what a glorious plan, Lord that you would save a people out of this world, out of their sins and into a relationship with you. Lord, you chose us before the foundation of the world, and in history we see your plan being fulfilled. We see your purposes, and we we see your grace throughout history, and we thank, thank you this morning, God, for what you have done in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that we would be redeemed from our sins, brought into a relationship with you, given forgiveness of sins and eternal life. God, may we see the scope and the glory of your plan in history this morning. May we understand the glory of salvation that you provided for us. We pray that you would use your word in our hearts for those of us that know you, God, that we would continue to be conformed to the image of your son, the very likeness of God. Thank you for your word this morning, for this glorious epistle. Thank you that you spoke through the Apostle Paul. And Lord, it is coming to us today. May you be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Nearly 4,000 years ago, God gave a gracious promise to a man from a pagan family who had been raised on the other side of the river, both literally and spiritually. A man by the name of Abram, meaning exalted father. God would later change his name to Abraham, the father of of many nations and how appropriate that was. God promised him that in his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It was a blood covenant ratified, guaranteed by God himself, based upon the unchanging nature of God. The Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You see, Abraham believed God's promise. He believed the words of God. And the blessings of this covenant would come to those with the faith of Abraham, those who believe God's promise of salvific blessing. All the promises of God are found in Abraham's seed. That is Christ, the Messiah. God has not changed his mind. God has not set aside his promises. The promise to Abraham was not plan B and the law to Moses I said that wrong. 
The promise of Abraham was not plan A, and the promise to Moses, plan B. God has not added any conditions to his promise given to Abraham. The law that came 430 years later was not an additional requirement. It certainly did not mean that God, God's promise was now received by faith plus works. It would, as always, be received. God's grace would be received by faith alone. So why then the law? We saw it last week. Paul tells us in chapter 3, verse 9, it was at, verse 19, excuse me, it was added because of trespasses or transgressions, literally law-breaking, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. From Adam to Moses, the law was written on man's heart, his conscience. But man had disregarded the law. His conscience had become defiled and seared and calloused. Especially, I think this was true, after God gave his promise to Abraham. They thought that they were free to live as they chose. After all, they thought they were God's chosen people, the people of Israel. You see, until the Mosaic Covenant, man transgressed God's law with no immediate penalty. So God gave them his law not as an addition to the promise, but as an, a guardian until the promise would come. But as Paul makes clear, the promise of God is fulfilled in the seed, singular, the seed of Abraham, that is Christ. And it's received just like Abraham through faith. Man is not saved by the works of the law. Man is not saved by keeping a list of do's and don'ts. Man is saved by the promise keeper. He is saved through faith in the promised one that is Christ. Our text today we pick up is in verse 21, and we will read through verse 29 and try to exegete the whole text this morning. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, being shut up for the coming faith to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor unto Christ, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So we pick up this morning in verse 21, where Paul continues to discuss the relationship between the covenant that God made with Abraham and the law that he gave to Moses. Paul asks, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is the law literally against it? The word means against or opposed to the promise that God gave to Abraham. 
You see, God gave both the law and the promise. God does not contradict himself. God does not change his mind. So Paul answers in the strongest possible way. In the emphatic Hebrew mode, he says, May getomai, may it never be. Certainly not, by no means. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? That's an impossibility. It's unthinkable that God would break his promise that he gave to Abraham. Paul continues, For if a law had been given which is able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Paul is telling us that the law is, in essence, inferior to the promise in that it does not impart life. Through the promise came life. But the law was and is incapable of giving life. That is not the purpose of the law. Paul tells us that if any law could have ever been able to give life to the sinner, it would have been the law given to Moses. But that's not the case. Because no law can do that. No law is able to impart life. No law is able to save the sinner. No law is capable of dealing with the sin problem. No law can change the human heart. The law does not impart life. That was not its purpose. That is, or that, it, that would be, let's say it this way, that would be in opposition to the promise God gave to Moses and it would make the death of Christ unnecessary, and it would give reason for men to boast. That's certainly not the purpose of the law. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, for if Adam was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Quoting Genesis fifteen six, Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him, imputed to him as righteousness. Paul continues in verse 22. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul says the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. These words shut up means locked up securely enclosed in on every side. It means to be imprisoned with no way of escape. Paul writes in Romans 7, 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. You see, the law makes me aware of my sinful condition and therefore my helplessness to escape the consequences of sin, which is death. The law imprisons me. It sentences me to death. It locks me up securely and leaves me helpless to escape. In this same verse, Paul gives us the ultimate purpose for being imprisoned by the law. Again, notice it is not to impart life. Verse 22, again, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. Here it is so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. We are, again, shut up, imprisoned under sin, so that we might trust in the Abrahamic promise realized in Jesus Christ by faith. You see, the law boxes me in. 
with no way to free myself from the death penalty so that I might look to Christ, that I might look to the grace promised to Abraham, that I might believe in the fulfillment of that promise, which is Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Mashiach, that he is my substitute, that he is my deliverer, my redeemer, my savior. Like Paul in Romans 7, the law causes me to exclaim, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And what does Paul say? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is the answer. It's the promise of Abraham. It is the seed of Abraham. It is Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the law judges me guilty. It imprisons me to my doom, and it leaves me helpless to escape. Do you wish this morning to be delivered from the law of sin and death? Do you wish to be delivered from the death penalty? That freedom is only in Jesus Christ. Freedom comes in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, you might have noticed, if you're paying a lot of attention, I didn't notice it at first, but Paul, for most of this chapter, spoke in the third person, him, those, you, he. But in the next two verses, Paul uses the first person plural, we, our, Paul includes himself when he writes in verse 23, but before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, being shut up for the coming faith to be revealed. You see, before faith came, before the new covenant promise in Christ, Paul says that we, specifically the Jews, but broadly it can refer to all of us, were held in custody under the law, being shut up for the coming faith to be revealed. The word held means to keep with a military guard. We were held in custody under the law with a military guard, so to speak. Custody is the same word as shut up in verse 23. It means that we were imprisoned, that we were held secure with military guard. So the law keeps us imprisoned with military power. Through the law, we have no way of escape. Because of our stony hearts, we have no means of obeying the law. Because of our hearts before salvation, we're opposed to God's ways, to God's law, to God's glory. Verse 24, therefore, the law has become our tutor unto Christ so that we might be justified by faith. The word tutor or guardian is pedagogos. We think of it often as referring to a teacher, a tutor to his students. But it's also used to refer to a guardian or a disciplinarian. And I believe it really has both ideas here, especially within the context. In old-time classrooms, the teacher would instruct the students in front of the classroom. That's the tutor. But another person would walk. Imagine this. Another person would walk the aisle carrying a wooden pole. By the way, I saw this in an old Moravian church where uh, in Winston-Salem where there was a person in the church. There, there's a, there explaining how the church used to function, and he would carry a rod with a knob on one end to bang the man over the head if he fell asleep, and a feather on the other end to tickle the lady if she fell asleep. Well, that's not exactly the case here. 
But that other person in this context would walk the aisle carrying a wooden pole. He is the all he's also the Pythagogos, the guardian in this case. If a student would nod off, daydream, or get out of line in any way, the Pythagogos would wrap them on the knuckles. That's exactly what the law does. It brings harsh discipline. It crushes the people. It brings death. It screams out to the sinner, the soul who sins shall surely die. And since the law brings such harsh punishment, it also teaches us. It tutors us unto Christ. It points us. It drives us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith, that we might rest not in ourselves because we are unable to please God. It causes us to rest, not in ourselves, but as we're driven to Christ, to rest in him, to the promise of God of salvation in Jesus Christ. Many of you might remember, I know you remember, Martin Luther, 1483 to 1546. God used the law to discipline him and to tutor him unto Christ. Not only did the law wrap him on the knuckles, Yes, it did drive him to Christ. Luther was a monk living in a monastery. And as he reflected on the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Luther knew that he was incapable of obeying this commandment. He found himself in prison by the law. It wrapped him on the knuckles over and over again so that he could not escape his guilt. He was imprisoned to his sin and his guilt. You see, Luther knew in his heart that he did not love God. Actually, he later admitted that he hated God because he saw him as a harsh taskmaster. So Luther would spend hours every day going to confession. They got tired of him. Over and over, day after day, hours in the confession booth, and it brought him no peace. It wasn't until God opened his eyes to the meaning of Romans 1, 17, for in it, speaking of the good news of Christ, in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just, the righteous man, Habakkuk 2, 4, the righteous man shall live by faith. You see, therefore, the law became his tutor to drive him unto Christ so that he would be justified by faith. And that's exactly what happened to Luther. He looked to the grace of God in Jesus Christ and found freedom from sin, freedom from law, freedom from guilt. And that's exactly the purpose of the law, to drive sinners to Christ, to point them to the promise of Abraham, the seed, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. I told you when we began this epistle to the Galatians, that in large part, this is a book about freedom, freedom from law-keeping, freedom from the death penalty, 
freedom to live as we were created to the glory of God. All of that freedom found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is only true of those who are in Christ. Those who have been justified by faith in the promised one. Those outside of Christ are condemned by the law. If not by the law of Moses, as we saw last week, by the law written on their hearts. But those who have believed in Christ, those who have trusted in him as Lord and Savior, are no longer under a tutor that wraps us on the hands, that condemns us, because we have been set free from the law of sin and death by the grace of God, by the promise of God given to Abraham, promised to Abraham. Verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Have you ever had anyone tell you, Well, we're just all children of God anyway. I remember the first time I heard that, believe it or not, I was, I think, 15 years old. I was in Hershey, Pennsylvania at a good and plenty restaurant. I was timid back then. I didn't know what to say, but I knew that wasn't right. That's what people want us to believe. That's what the unconverted like to believe. But we're not all children of God. Only those who have the faith of Abraham are children of God, and therefore they are blessed. Only those who have believed upon Christ as Lord and Savior. But notice Paul writes to you who are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Those who believe in Christ Jesus are sons of God. Paul in this text does not say children of God. We are sons of God, and I believe that's significant. It was the son who received the inheritance. Through faith, we have re, we excuse me, through faith, we have an inheritance that belongs to Christ, but is shared with us. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. We are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ, the promised one, the one who has mediated the new covenant, the one who promised that he will save his people from their sins. Verse 27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ, Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Have you been baptized into Christ? Understand, this is not speaking of water baptism. This is referring to the reality that water, water baptism pictures. We call it spirit baptism. The very moment that a person believes the spirit is identified with Christ in his person and his work, in his death, burial, and resurrection. John MacArthur writes this, This is a great mystery that the human, heart, the human mind cannot fathom. But in some spiritual, supernatural way that that transcends time and space, the person who places his trust in Jesus Christ is crucified, buried, and resurrected with his Savior, baptized into Christ. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him, 1 Corinthians 6.17, so that when the Father looks at the sinful believer, he sees his sinless son. Think of that. MacArthur continues, faith appropriates the union that baptism symbolizes through faith in the promised one, the one 
promise to Abraham, the seed of Abraham, the believer is therefore clothed with Christ. He is enveloped with his life, his presence, and his righteousness. This truth that Paul speaks of is found in Galatians 2.20. We saw it a number of weeks ago. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It is because we're baptized into Christ by the Spirit through faith that we are dead to sin and alive to God. And we are clothed with his life, his presence, and his righteousness. Verse 28 and 29. There is neither, watch this, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither, or there's no, excuse me, male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise There may be no clear passage in the scriptures as to who the sons of Abraham truly are. No clear passage as to who inherits the promises of Abraham. Paul tells us the inheritance is not based upon nationality. He says neither Jew nor Greek. I mean, think about the context here. Paul is in in theme is dealing with the Judaizers who are claiming that you must be circumcised. You must adhere to the Mosaic laws. You must be a Jew, so to speak. But Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek. You see, it's not necessarily the physical descendants of Abraham who inherit the promise, but those with the faith of Abraham, chapter 3, verse 6. Remember, God told Abraham that in you, all the families, it's people groups, it's clans. That's the Hebrew, Hebrew word. All the people groups of the earth will be blessed. The inheritance is not also based upon social status, neither slave nor free man. In the first world, in the first century world, people did not look too highly upon slaves. People that had to sell themselves into slavery who could not make it on their own. But see, the promise of the blessings that are in Christ is not dependent upon social class or economic class. It does not matter how much you make or your position in this world. The inheritance, the promise of Abraham is received through faith in the promised one. Notice the inheritance is not based upon gender. There is no male and female. God has certainly given men and women different roles in the church and in the home. To some degree, maybe in society, but in Christ, there's no distinction. We are equal before God in Christ. There is no spiritual advantage to either. The word of God says then, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The blessings of Abraham, the inheritance of Christ is given equally to all who believe because we are all united as one in Christ. Verse 29, and if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. This text makes it clear that those who belong to Christ, those who believe in Christ as the promised one, 
are Abraham's seed and therefore heirs according to the promise. Because Christ is the seed of Abraham, those who belong to him are Abraham's seed so that we inherited the promises God made to Abraham. I believe that means all of them. That's my position. All the promises made to Abraham. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, we Gentiles were strangers to the covenants of promise. These were the promises to God's household. And we were alienated from the citizenship of Israel. That's verse 12. Ephesians 2, 12. But in verse 19, we're no longer strangers and aliens as Gentiles. But we are fellow citizens with the saints. We have the same citizenship. We are of the same nation of God, the same kingdom of God, and members of the household of God, the same family with the blessings of that household, all of them. But the question has come up, and I've been following this on Twitter, and it's interesting to see all the things that's come up. But what about the physical descendants of Abraham? Of course, those who are not in Christ are not blessed with the blessings of Abraham. But does God have a future for the descendants of Abraham, those that are physical descendants of Abraham? Has God broken his promise to them? Paul says in Romans chapter 9, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. But in Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. You see, you must be in Christ. You must have the faith of Abraham in order to be included in God's blessings. But what does this mean for the physical descendants of Abraham? As a nation, they rejected the Messiah. But Paul writes in Romans 3, 3, what then if some did not believe if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May genomai, may it never be. It doesn't nullify the faithfulness of God. And you get to Romans chapter 11, and Paul writes, I say then, has God rejected his people? Has he? I said that wrong. Paul writes, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May genomai, may it never be. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Then Paul talks about Elijah who spoke against God's people. And God's response to Elijah in verse 4 says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Verse 5, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's grace. Even throughout the church age, there has been a remnant of God's people out of Israel. But then Paul pictures the blessings of Abraham as an olive tree. God has broken off natural branches, the Jews, because of their unbelief, and he has grafted in Gentiles, wild branches. But then God warns the Gentiles, if you do not continue in his kindness, how much more will you be cut off? And that's what I believe as we come to the end of the last days. The apostasy of the church represents the falling away people from the truth of God. 
But then we come to the end of this chapter, and I hope that you will see before we get done here, we're almost done, that this does not, this is not dispensationalism. Some of you may be dispensationalists, no offense there, but I'm not. This is not dispensationalism. This is covenantalism. And I want you to see that. Romans chapter 11, verse 25 through 29. For I do not want, for, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And so, are those natural branches coming back? And so, all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So do reformed people believe that God has a place for national Israel in the body of Christ? John Calvin wrote, the Jews shall return from their defection to the obedience of faith and thus shall complete the salvation of the whole Israel of God. R.C. Sproul wrote, the nation of Israel as a nation will be restored to God as a nation. And Paul continues. See, this is such a glorious plan that God in history is saving a people unto himself. He is delivering us from our sins. He's bringing us into his covenant. He is bringing us into the body of Christ with all the blessings of Christ that are found in him. So Paul continues in Romans eleven thirty two. For God has not shut for God has shut up all in disobedience, so that He might show mercy to all. You see, God's eternal purpose is Ephesians three ten. I think it is. God's eternal purpose is realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's both Jew and Gentile, rich and poor. Male and female, we're all united with Christ and we share in that inheritance through faith. What a glorious plan. Jew and Gentile in one body. Those who had animosity towards one another throughout history. God has brought into one body through the ecclesia, the church, through those called out of the world by his grace, the manifold, the multifaceted, the multicolored wisdom of God is made known even to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Ephesians 3 again, so that all creation will worship him. So amazing, so glorious, so awesome that Paul closes this doctrinal section of Romans with a doxology. The word doxology means glory speak, and that's what we see in this text. We see the glory of God. It speaks praises unto God, all the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment and unexplainable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You see, salvation, God's perfect plan in history will not fail. It will not falter. This is the plan of God. This is the decree of God. Salvation is unto the glory of God. It is to the praise of his glorious grace. Are you in Christ this morning? Are you 
the seed of Abraham because you are in the seed of Abraham? Have you placed your faith in him and him alone? He is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Jesus Christ is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. No man comes to the Father except through Him. In Him are all the promises of God, salvation from our sins, freedom from the law that reveals sin and brings death, freedom from guilt, freedom to live in the likeness for which we were created. I've heard many over the years say this. They worry, maybe I'm not one of the elect. Well, I'll leave you with a word to Charles Spurgeon, who believed in divine sovereignty and election, and yet human responsibility. Spurgeon wrote this, whatever the doctrine of election may be or may not be, there is a free invitation in the gospel given to needy sinners. Look to Christ, all the ends of the earth, and be ye saved. That was the very text through which God spoke to Charles Spurgeon, and he was born again that Sunday morning. Look to Christ. There is no other hope. There is no other peace. There is no other way. But all the promises, all the blessings of God are found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.